Have you ever been out there at the crag and seen some dude free soloing and just thought to yourself, holy shit, how big of an idiot is that guy? Well, that guy is here on the microphone to tell you exactly how big of an idiot he is. So throw your rope in the closet where it belongs and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. The process is about to begin. Hey there. Some of you longtime listeners might remember my escapade with Cave Crack from episode 10. That was a decent misadventure in summer of 2007. I'll spare you the recount of that in this episode, because it's going to be long enough in its own right, but it fits right in. This episode is all about fucking up, contemplating life, and adjusting processes. The process didn't just arise out of nowhere. (laughs) I think a decent parallel is that Somewhere within the pages of OSHA regulations, it states that personnel and hazardous chemicals may not be housed in the same space. In safety classes seem like a ludicrous statement. And while the class guffawed at the absurdity of needing this rule, the instructor said something that stuck with me. These regulations are written in blood. The reasons we have rules is because of times we fucked up. Some company tried to save a dime by putting staff quarters and life-threatening chemicals in the same spot. And it didn't end well. Now, we have a rule about that. That escapade with Cave Crack nearly didn't end well. So I learned the lesson of knowing that you have to understand a route's character before launching upward. Now, I have a rule about that. Alpspitze. Garmisch Partenkirchen, 2008, August. <laughs> uh, I've never told this story to my dad. I'm really going to owe him apology for sneaking about like this. Um, sorry, Dad. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast and I can get away with it. That's uh, basically my only hope right here. I'm sure I'll hear about it soon if he does. This story takes place in Germany. Dad worked overseas for a long time, and due to tax brackets and such like, he had a limited amount of days that he could come home, or he'd face a crushing payment to the IRS at the end of the year. So, somewhat paradoxically, it was cheaper to fly both of us to Germany and meet up there instead. We had approached the Adamplatte route of the Alpspitze in the Bavarian Alps near Garmisch-Partenkirchen, 
by the Via Ferrata route. Having already gained a thousand feet of elevation from the tram station, we were on the ledge looking at the base of the route and Dad said, Nope. Why nope? I asked. Because I'm an old man and I'm tired. Okay, I can't really argue with that logic. But what does he want to do now? I want to take a nap. I want to head down to the cable car station. And I want to have a beer. Well, I did some quick calculus and reckoned I could make it to the top and back down in time for him to finish this beer. And I made a statement to that effect. The old man's quite good at taking a nap when he wants to. So I figured I'd have time. He tucked into a corner to go to sleep, and I scooted off towards the base of the route. I'm just gonna look at it, since we're here, you know? I waited about 15 minutes, then busted out my point-and-shoot camera, as I was quite a ways away. I zoomed in, took a photo, then I zoomed into the photo, verified that he was asleep, and started rocketing up the thousand-foot route. Hey, 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 cut me some slack, right? I was 19. We were all stupid once. I mean, I still am stupid. But I used to be, too. <laughs> some of us more than others. You know, we've all been there. We've all made dumb choices. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, I shot up the route. The climbing was mind-numbingly easy for the first couple fat hundred feet, and I rapidly escaped the broad ledge upon which the route began. Four hundred feet later, that ledge was but a vague memory. Most of the climbing was along a slab with water grooves ranging from 5.0 to 5.5 maybe. Uh, though I knew there was a 5-8 crux pitch up high. The view of the village below was astounding. The houses looked like ants, and people were invisible. And then the world shifted. I clenched tightly with my right hand to counteract the sudden movement as my left pulled off a block the size of my head. I watched in horror as it tumbled down the slabs. I couldn't help but imagine a ragdoll with my face taking the same tumble. Down, down, down it goes, bouncing off the wall into the slab 500 feet back down to the ledge. And maybe it stopped there, or maybe it kept falling another five thousand, or another thousand feet to the base of the wall, which itself is a few thousand feet above the valley. I was losing it. That was too much exposure to take in. I reached up and slapped myself in the face, since no one was around to do it for me. It worked in cartoons, so it seemed like a reasonable enough idea. As soon as I composed myself, I panicked a second time. Dad, napping. The route started a hundred yards to the left of his resting spot then immediately jogged upward and leftward for a couple hundred feet. I was probably 500 feet above him, 
but I was also 500 feet to the left. Wherever that block fell, he was safe. I paused for a moment to wonder how the cliff had become so wonderfully grooved for climbing. Some channels were cut deep enough for hand jams. Quickly, the reason became apparent. The grooves were carved by water runoff. Not just any water runoff, but snowmelt. That moisture sapped heat from my fingers, and they became numb to pain. Meanwhile, my feet had mostly lost any semblance of friction on the slick rock, but I was far too committed to downclimb. At this point, I'd only been soloing for six months, so I wasn't terribly experienced with downclimbing. I just figured, hey, this would be no big deal, and threw myself at it. So the only way off was up. After 750 feet of climbing, maybe 1,700 feet above the base of the wall, I realized I was lost. I know, I know. I'm on the north face of the Alpspitze, but I didn't know how to continue forward and get the hell off the wall, which is a surprisingly easy situation to get into, it seems. I was on sighting the route, trusting intuition, voodoo magic, and palm reading to get me through the proper sequences to the top. The climb mostly followed a massive slab dihedral up the wall. Most of the climbing was on the slab, but to my left was a vertical and heavily featured chunk of wall that jutted approximately 30 feet higher before forming the base of a parallel slab with yet another route. I was faced with a decision. Up ahead, I could see that the low angled half of my corner disappeared into that vertical segment of wall. It intersected that buttress and stopped cold. The only other option was up and left through a very burly looking bulge in the rock split with a crack. Overhanging jams, high in outer space. Minutes crept by as I deliberated, contemplated my life choices, and bargained with the almighty Bob. And I decided that I really was a complete fucking idiot. Finally, in desperation, I sunk one finger in a bolt and leaned backward about as far as I could stomach to gain vantage and peer forward. With my head extended further than Adam Andra's, I was able to catch a glimpse of metal about a hundred feet further up the wall. The anchors for the next pitch glinted in the sun like that famed light at the end of the tunnel. Looks like I wasn't headed for hell today after all. The crux was a 5'8 traverse on vertical rock that climbed 50 feet sideways like a ballet dance. Where my slab ended, I pulled onto that flat adjacent wall to traverse across open space to a slab running parallel to mine, but a little bit lower. Toes pointed onto pebbles and edges. Arms held at just the right angle to the rock to minimize fatigue. I flowed through the moves like the water running across the cliff itself, and I disappeared completely. 
There was no rock. There was no me. Only the pure execution and complete focus. I never could remember the moves from that sequence, but I remember a profound sense of peace that never quite left me. As I topped out on the wall, a couple guys were walking along the Via Ferrata in the home stretch to the summit. They looked at me very hard. Then they glanced down, and then back to me. Down and back and down and back, they craned their heads just about as hard as I had previously. Then they uh, grabbed the cable of the Via Ferrata so that they had a handhold where they could look farther down to see where the hell I'd just come from. They looked back at me in startled confusion, and I explained, in German, I'm from Texas. There is no other guy. Well, they said, and walked off like Texas explained everything. I really don't know how that fucking explained anything, but they seemed satisfied. After tagging the summit, I sprinted down the Via Ferrata with one hand hovering over the safety cable, just in case. Swaying side to side in a headlong, purposeful downhill crash like Jack Sparrow fleeing the British in the Caribbean. Just as I came within sight of the cable car station, I slowed to a walk so that I wouldn't give away my haste. When I arrived at the table, Dad was enjoying the last sip of beer in his mug. Sometimes things just work out. On this day, I learned that a route can never be only five-something. Fly on a windshield, spring break of 2011. I was full of myself, and it was a glorious weekend. I had finished my 15th solo of the day on a route called Pro Sweat that went at 5'9 plus. It was a slab, and slabs are supposed to be sketchy, but they were also my strength as a climber back then. And I had felt incredibly solid, so I decided to up the ante to fly on a windshield, 510A. I sauntered over to the base and pulled through the initial flakes rapidly to gain a precarious mantle, and then I just sat there. The holds upon which I perched did not inspire confidence. The next sequence didn't appear much better. Worse, in fact. I had led the climb on site only a week or two earlier. And I remembered how easy it had felt. But at that moment, I couldn't put my finger on what was different, other than the fact that my foot seemed to be slipping very, very slowly. The next bolt was above my head, within arm's reach. Apparently, when I led the route, the crux moves were accomplished with all the boldness of top rope. Splendid. No wonder I felt so damn solid back then. Slipping. That toe was slipping. Look. You have two choices. Sit and think and splatter. Or fucking go for it. Maybe, just maybe you'll make it. Might as well go out trying, right? I grabbed those awful crimps for dear life, resituated my deteriorating foothold, and flung myself up at the next good hold. A muffin sloper. 
I use the word good very loosely in this instance. Time dilated and slowed to a standstill. What looked to the outside world to take only an instant took an eternity inside my mind as my entire being became consumed with the effort required to make that one single move and pull back away from the event horizon from which not even light can escape. One move. That's the difference between life and death. Smack! My hand connected as my feet blew out on me, and I mantled up onto a really good ledge. Adrenaline surged through my body as I greeted life with a fresh outlook. But it wasn't quite over yet. I had to climb another hundred feet to the summit, mostly about 5'7", so I got back into the zone and continued, trembling all the way to the top. Someone on the rock nearby hollered for some casual conversation. Ahoy! I used to solo a bit too myself back in the day. Just never on slabs though. I always found them way too sketchy. And I thought to myself, yeah, me fucking too apparently. But instead I settled for saying, well, everybody has their own style, you know and worked my hardest to avoid breathing too heavily and belie my panic over the events of the past 30 seconds. On that day, I learned the well-known fact that ego is the most difficult terrain to protect in all of climbing, and that you can't chance a solo if you weren't contemplating soloing the route when you climbed it last. You need that contemplation to perform a proper pre-flight inspection. The Nose of Looking Glass in North Carolina, 5-8, December 2013. It's no big deal, I said. It's only 5-8, I said. It's a slab, and that's what you're good at, I said. Oh, you're well accustomed to granite, I said. And so I pointed my faithful frontier down the gravel roads into the Pisgah wilderness aiming for the nose at Looking Glass Rock. Staring up at the route, it was far from intimidating. Sure, it was a holdless sea of polished granite, but those weird eyebrow features seemed inviting. We didn't have features like that at Enchanted Rock, we just had a bunch of nickel and dime edges. In my limited experience at the time, Features were good. Features inspired confidence. I began the process of making mantles up the wall. This rock was certifiably weird. You call this 5-6? That thought should probably have been my first warning. At the bolted belay for the first pitch, I stopped and contemplated life. The next section looked steeper, but after checking Mountain Project on my phone, yeah, I was standing there, hands-free, mid-route, flipping through the internet on my handheld internet box. Well, from photos, I could tell that I was en route, and this gave me hope. I briefly considered down-climbing and dismissed it. That'd be too much of a pain in the ass. This thing's only 5'8". Only... 
thinking that down climbing would be a pain in the ass. That should have been my final warning. But I pushed onward, deeper into abysmal folly. The wall wasn't exactly blank, but everything was terribly rounded. Unlike Enchanted Rock, there were no crisp edges on the slab to be found. The next move would require me to commit myself to a tiny greasy dimple on the rock. There were no handholds to use if I slipped, I couldn't compensate. There were no additional footholds to shore up my balance either. I had to trust my life to that foot. I couldn't trust my life to that foot. I tried to ease into it. Too sketchy. I tried to down-climb, and found that my stupid self had performed a rather irreversible mantle to get into my current predicament. Dangling my foot down, I couldn't find the previous toehold upon which to lower my body weight. I was stuck, but it hadn't sunk in yet. With increasing panic, I climbed up, and then down, and then up, and then down, oscillating in a 15 by 15 foot box on the rock. I couldn't find any way to escape intact. Every possible way out appeared to have odds below 50%. Up, down, left, right, there was no acceptable direction. Finally, even though I was in a decent no-hands rest, I broke down weeping. I thought about my friends, my family, everyone that ever loved me or cared for me. I thought of all the things I had wanted to see in the world. I thought of the goals I once had in a previously life that had apparently ended 30 minutes earlier, when I was too stupid to notice that it had passed. When I was too hell-bent on climbing upward to recognize that I was inexcusably committed to going forward. And once again, my thoughts drifted back to my friends, and the folly of my situation hit me like a ton of bricks for the first time. Could there possibly be any greater sin than willfully jeopardizing one's own life for no discernible fucking purpose? Standing there, perched on one foot, 150 feet off the ground, uncontrollably sobbing softly to myself. I finally understood the only blasphemy. There may be greater sins, but at that moment, I couldn't think of any. I spotted some climbers at the base of the route, and they began moving upward with a painstaking slowness. I stood on that small, sloping ledge for what seemed like an eternity for the leader caught up to me and he passed me a sling to use as a makeshift harness. I couldn't look him in the eye. I'd stood there for maybe... Who knows? Could have been 30 minutes. Could have been an hour and a half. It was a long time. The next weekend, I went to on-site solo at Tennessee Wall and didn't top out on a single route. I kept climbing halfway up and then realizing it would be an awkward spot to reverse. That meant it was time to back off. I was honor bound. 
Still, half of eight 100-foot roots. Eight times 100 times half. That's 400 feet of climbing at a beautiful place. Not a bad day at all. There at the nose, I had learned that you can't let belief in your strengths lead you past the warning signs of commitment. On-site soloing requires redundancy. Up, down, left, and right. At any point in time, you must have two of these available if you are to proceed. I don't want to say safely, but if you want to be able to say that you were being careful. This is absolutely essential to assuring that you have a way out. And you do need a way out when facing the completely unknown. instances and current thinking, I've come up with a bit of a uh, reflight calculus, if you will, that keeps me from doing anything monumentally stupid. Just regularly stupid. Not that any of it can be argued as particularly smart, but it's my idea of a good time and it keeps me laughing, if I do it right. And that's the key thing, climbing should be fun and it has to be done right. Gravity is unforgiving in that respect, and I figure if I ever stop laughing about it, if I ever lose the humor of climbing and its ridiculousness, it's probably time for me to quit the whole thing outright. That encounter with the nose was probably my, about my 75th pitch soloed, uh, but I've done several hundred since without any frightening incidents like the one detailed. It seems I've learned my lesson well, and I can only hope that it sticks. Nowadays, as soon as a route stops being incredibly fun, I'm out, long before it reaches the threshold of dangerous. I suppose, in a way, it helps that nowadays, I actually know what dangerous feels like. You know, every now and then someone will ask me, you even feel fear? And I think the above should make it very clear that I do. I've been asked if I value my life and understand what I'm doing. And I think that I do more than most people. You folks with the ropes out there have the option to remain ignorant in such positions of these. If you sport climb particularly, you can trick yourself into believing that your safety was someone else's job when they installed the bolts right up until you stare at a bolt that's rusted like the Titanic. <laughs> I was talking to someone. I said, no, I don't want to get in the trad. Why? Because it's scary. Why? Because of falling. Why is falling scary? All this stuff was engineered to be fall protection in uh, such a litigious lawsuit-happy society as we have, they couldn't engineer it as fall protection, 
and stay in business if it sucked. Well, what if I place it wrong? Oh, you mean you're afraid of it because it demands competency. I gotcha. It, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I'm no different from most. I've done some very stupid things in my time, but I know that everything I do out on the rock demands competency. I don't skip trad climbing because I'm afraid of exercising competency. No. I understand that even top roping demands competency. Oh, the key thing is learning deeply from your mistakes. Once upon a time, I had a short conversation on a cell site with a crane operator. It sums it up. He says, holy shit. So do you do it for the rush? He was talking about tower climbing. No. Can't say that I do. Well, why not? I mean, the adrenaline has got to be intense. No. I can't say that it is. Well, why not? Because there is no adrenaline. There is no rush. How does that work? Don't you get scared? No, oh, yeah. Loads of times. Usually when I'm out climbing on a rock, and I've got a rope with me, and I'm pushing it. See, the thing is, a person only feels adrenalized and gets a rush when they truly, deeply believe they are in danger. And I don't like to do the dangerous thing. Hmm. I've done the dangerous thing already. It wasn't intentional, and it wasn't pleasant. If you climb for the rush, or climb for adrenaline, then you're an idiot, and you're going to fucking die. It's that simple. If I feel that rush, or adrenaline, I know that I need to sit down and have a long talk with myself. Some folks get all excited about the things I've soloed, but these days, I think you'd be more amazed at all the things I haven't. And that is why this isn't big climbing. No, my friends, this has absolutely nothing to do with the hashtag blessed 515vnarsty8a.nu daily training video world of big climbing. You could be climbing a cell phone tower that's so skinny at the top you can wrap your arms around it to bring LTE coverage to the denizens of the great city of Nashville, Tennessee. And you notice something which suspiciously looks like a pee bottle wedged in between the existing signal cables coming up the tower, blocking the porthole. That's dank nasty. Looks like it's been up here since they made 3G ten years ago. So you try to ignore it while you hoist a new cable up the tower, but that cable gets snagged somewhere on the way up, and it, it compresses the existing lines with the tension. So you stare down at the inside of the tower, with your tongue sticking out because you're thinking so hard, wondering 
where did that rope get snagged? And then, boom, headshot! That ten-year-old crusty-ass pre-existing piss bottle from some son of a bitch that left it up here just blew up so hard in your fucking face from 18 inches away that you tasted it! And you still wouldn't be as far away from big climbing as this is. Remember, folks, do try to be safe out there. But, uh, you know, if you happen to be like me and find yourself constitutionally incapable of being safe because you're absolutely batshit insane, be careful. Somber contemplation is absolutely essential in this wild world of ours because life truly is an inherently dangerous sport. When I tell you that I love life, it's because I know what it's like to have a brain that hates yourself. But you never know just how much you actually love life, like that moment 150 feet off the deck when your foot slips. And when I say I don't like danger, it's because I really and truly know what danger is. And when I say I don't want to die, it's because I've confronted it from sources both internal and external. I've sat on a ledge and wondered if I was going to make it. And I've also sat for hours and read stories about checking into a hospital while staring at the website for the suicide hotline. I've seen that your life isn't what flashes before your eye, but rather everyone you've ever loved after making the most grave of mistakes. I can think of a few folks straight off the top of my head who were my peers in college that have died young in the intervening years between then and now. It's no secret that fate has had plenty of chance to call my number instead of theirs. But I'm still here. Not even the ones who've played it the safest are immune to the ravages of time and chance. It seems like we're all just living off of borrowed time, as they say. You've only got one shot on this dust ball. Make it a fucking good one. <laughs>